Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, friend. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure spending this time with you. If you follow along with other episodes, you may have noticed that we've taken a somewhat narrow focus on the effective treatment of pain, either from an individual perspective or identifying which methods have evidence that we can utilize and weave into our existing clinical practice. Today, we're going to take a wider and more broad focus and look at the impact of chronic pain as a global health priority. Joining us today as our expert guest is Dr. Christopher Williams. Chris is a research fellow and health services researcher with a background in both exercise science as well as physiotherapy. He currently has a joint role within a public health unit where he established and leads the Musculoskeletal Health Services Program, a research practice program which focuses on improving the coordination of public health and clinical services to optimize management of health risk factors associated with musculoskeletal conditions. This program collaborates with stakeholders from multiple settings, including clinical care units, community health, and industry partners to optimize both prevention as well as treatment. His work focuses on developing and testing new approaches to prevention and care, as well as practice change methods to influence the use and adoption of evidence-based approaches. On today's episode, you'll learn what makes pain a public health issue and how it differs from a population health issue, how pain management fits into public health, what we can learn from public health to help reduce the burden of pain, the biggest challenges we face when dealing with pain in a public health model, And finally, how research at times has failed to inform clinical practice and what we can do about it. I'm excited to be sharing this new episode with you with regard to the impact of chronic pain as a public global health priority. Without further ado, let's begin and let's meet Dr. Christopher Williams. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining me this week on the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here. Pleasure to be here, Joe. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Likewise, I know it's a little bit early where you are in Australia, but we're always interested to hear what you all are doing in Australia because it differs a little bit from how we're approaching pain in the U.S. at times. Sure. We're going to talk about pain as a public health issue today, mm-hmm. and it's, of course, an important issue and one that's interesting and new for this podcast. But let's, before we kind of go there, just tell us how you became interested in studying public health as a physiotherapist. Sure. Yeah. So I, I studied as a physiotherapist uh, and then completed my Ph.D., in Sydney with the George Institute and more or less for family reasons moved to a a city a little bit north of Sydney called Newcastle which is where I I grew up and just by chance started working with a a population health unit which is a public health unit essentially but the core focus of the population health unit was is to address population health needs so particularly focusing on physical activity you know those big chronic disease risk factors high BMI, healthy eating, smoking cessation, and alcohol misuse. So I was working for a little while with, with those guys as a, an evaluation officer and then more or less just tried to unite the musculoskeletal aspect with the, the population health problems that, that we were working on. And that was a, a unique but a really nice fit for our research and I guess our program sort of taken off from there where we're 
we're combining that population health focus with the musculoskeletal problems in, in clinical services. So just tell us, before we kind of enter into this topic, because it's, it's, a, it's a big one, as you know, the difference between public health and population health, if we can define that a little bit first so people can see the difference and distinction. Sure. So some people are, are more funny about this than others. Personally, uh, I think the, the terms can be quite fluid, but it, it's probably a good idea to be defining what you, you mean when you talk about these things. But typically, public health refers to the health situation of the, the public at large, and, and it's probably subject to things like government regulation to ensure medical professionals are doing their job properly, for example. You know, another way to define it would be something like how we as society collectively ensure the conditions of the population. Sorry, I shouldn't use the word population, but how we collectively ensure the conditions of people in society can be healthy. So they're, they're sort of policy-type concerns. Um, whereas population health might be more concerned with specific individuals within society. So identifying specific groups and, and understanding the health challenges of those specific groups. And we can define those groups by location, you know, characteristics, it could be country. There's many ways to define a population group. But in population health, we're, we're concerned with the outcomes of those individuals within that group. So that's how we sort of think about those differences. It's pretty subtle. But, but nonetheless, it, it helps us orientate the activities that, that we might do in a yeah. public health space or a population health space. How does pain management or the care of pain fit into public health? That's a tricky one. It probably fits into both public health and, and population health. But we would consider pain as a public health issue purely because everyone gets pain. It's, you know, this comes back to the biology a little bit, I guess. And... Probably more importantly, it concerns you know, historical issues around how pain is managed. So what care is accessible for people in society, how governments have regulated medical professions and policy around pain management as a public health issue. That would be my best go at uh, describing how pain is a public health issue. And even when you talk about policy, it's probably not something that shows up on too many physios' radars, but we do have an mm -hmm. influence as a profession with regard to public health and the treatment of pain. Yeah, yeah, definitely, 100%. And, and I think a lot of us have probably experienced that more recently with the COVID-19 yeah. restrictions. So number one, people might be more reluctant to go to their, their physio, their chiropractor, or the, the, the health pr provider. Yet some insurance companies, for example, don't have policy around accessing telehealth models of care. So that's, that's a really nice and, and relevant example of where pain is a, a public health issue. Yeah. A lot of people experiencing pain, but they can't access care. What kind of teaching points can approaching pain from a public health perspective help us either effectively evaluate, manage, and treat chronic pain for the variety of conditions that are out there? It's a good question, and I'd be interested in your thoughts here based on the, the education that, that you're providing in, in this space. We tend to think about pain in public health more from a, like an advocacy perspective. And so if we want to mobilise a workforce, we need to be better advocates around the things that we can do for pain management, I think. And that can happen in professional groups or it can happen more broadly across a population, I guess. So does that place, let's say, physiotherapists in a position where they should be taking an active role in things like public health campaigns to create messaging that's effective for proper pain care, pain management, or the conceptualization yeah. of pain? All those are kind of topics that have come up recently. Yeah, listen, I agree. And it probably depends on the type of campaigning. You know, we often hear 
and I think this is where the, the public health message and the population health message gets a little bit convoluted and it could be around things like weight loss for, for pain management or, or better activity or physical activity for, for pain management campaigns around these, which tend to be more population health you know, issues, the defined populations that, that we're talking about there. But certainly around the conceptualisation of pain and you know, what pain is and how we should manage it effectively when we get it, I, I think they're really good vehicles or focuses for public health campaigns and advocacy for, for any professional group. In Australia, is this showing up in university education? I know in the US, it's starting to show up in some of the more health promotion and wellness type classes that have been integrated into the DPT curricula, but still not, if I, you know, CAPT, which is our accreditation standards here in the United States, doesn't have a whole bunch with regard to pain as a public health concern for physiotherapists. Yeah, as far as I know, it's not very well integrated into the education of our pre-qualification training there's certainly groups that are professional societies and groups that are, are trying to to bring this you know, much further forward but the the pre-qualification training in australia as far as i understand is, is not so much focused on the, the public health or, or population health aspects of, of managing chronic pain i think it's really important to the australian government's credit that they've they're trying to shake things up a little bit, but to do so, you know, across professions rather than in a siloed approach. So I understand at the moment there's a review going on of pre-qualification and post-qualification training in Australia to, to be more comprehensive of the public health issue around pain. So a physiotherapist would pursue, let's say, another degree in public health, or they would concentrate out on that in their PhD with regard to public health like you did. That's one avenue that they could take or two av- two different avenues they could take. Yeah, exactly. I think a, a master's of, of public health is, is, is common, a common way to, to engage with the, the public health side of, of our healthcare system. To be honest, I don't know how common that is for physiotherapists, for example, or, or other allied health professionals. I think the issue is, is marrying those, those two things. You know, we can learn about public health or population health, but marrying that with clinical practice or a certain profession, maybe a way, a way of managing patients with pain. Certainly a group of individuals in our society who have a particular health issue and marrying that, that public health um, approach is not commonplace. Tell us a couple examples of how your research specifically has looked into aspects of public health. I know you mentioned chronic back pain or lower back pain before. Have you specifically looked into low back pain with regard to public health? Well, we're talking a lot about public health. Most of our work I'd put in the population health arena. So we do a lot of work in, in health services of defined populations. So that might be patients who are accessing or have been referred for orthopedic surgery consultation, the back pain or, or patients with back pain or osteoarthritis. Those patients have a unique characteristics potentially to patients who are accessing physiotherapy care or general practice or patients in the community. And they tend to, so those patients tend to have a much higher health needs so they might be more likely to have things like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. We've noticed that there's a higher rate of smoking in, in that particular population group. So the patients that are sort of going to, to these sort of tertiary care models tend to have much more complex health needs. And so the research that we're doing at the moment is, number one, trying to help the system deal with the volume of those patients because there's a lot of patients that are being sent or referred to these centres. But number two, trying to investigate the best way to support these patients, acknowledging that 
if we help their back a little bit or help their back pain a little bit, they're, they're not that much better. So we try and provide a more comprehensive care model um, and test the effectiveness of of that comprehensive care model. And so within those comprehensive care models, does that include multidisciplinary care or does it include training practitioners to be transdisciplinary in their own practice? It's interesting because the, both the public health and the population health issues really have lifestyle factors at the core. Yep. But as a profession, we're still kind of a little unsure at times as to how deep we can go into each of those lifestyle factors or even if we should go into mm-hmm. lifestyle interventions around certain topics such as yeah. nutrition, for example. Yeah, so that's a really good question and point, Joe. I guess we're, a, we're pretty liberal in, in whether we, we go for a multidisciplinary approach or a, or a transdisciplinary approach or even try and provide more integrated care with, within the one consultation or profession group. I'm not convinced of either approach is better. The, the key issue in our view is that patients are not getting this care. Mm-hmm. And so we'll try and arrange care based on what's available. If it's a physio that's providing the care, you know, they're providing weight loss advice and, and things like that. And I think that's a good thing, you know, as, as opposed to a dietitian and a physio. Sometimes a dietitian isn't available. If it's another health professional that's providing some counselling around smoking cessation. I think that the key issue that, that we're concerned is concerned with, sorry, is number one, understanding we're acknowledging that these are a part of the, the, the patient's health challenges. And number two, that they're not receiving this care. Our data suggests that, that only 10% of patients who come from primary care to tertiary referral hospitals have been advised about any of these broader health determinants mm. in the past. 10% is extremely low, especially, yeah. I mean, I would expect that in the US, but even hearing it from a country outside the US is is concerning. So as you mentioned, multidisciplinary care, a lot of people look at that as kind of the gold standard, specifically with regard to musculoskeletal pain. And when I think of public health and population health in the US, especially, I think of the economy and economics that are behind all this. How do we start to look at, okay, are there, or should, have we looked at models yet at delivering interventions and education in a way that is effective for chronic pain as a public health issue? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I think the answer is yes. So there's there's good evidence to, and good evidence on the cost effectiveness of multidisciplinary approaches. The problem is they're not widely available, and I think that's the challenge for patients. And the thing we need to keep in mind is that the patients are the ones that are, are challenged with this. It's you know we're talking about their journey in healthcare, and even though you know as we say there's there is you know good evidence to support a multidisciplinary approach, and good economic data to say that it's, it's cost effective, it's just not available. And so I think then we need to be flexible in how it's delivered and probably coming back to my, my point about being liberal in, in how we arrange this care. If that's in with one care provider, touching on the, these different aspects of care, I think that's a good thing. It's better than, than not receiving it. It makes things like health coaching come to the forefront and seem yep. like really interesting, viable opportunities that even some... Yep. Even that is even taught now in some physical therapy programs, aspects yeah. of behavior change yeah. and coaching. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that these, these models don't need to be tested. I, I think we should embrace a, an environment where we're continually assessing what, you know, the effectiveness of what, what we're providing patients. But at the same time, we need to be realistic in, in what we can deliver. Tell me about the Good Science Company and your work and what that's happening about. The Good Science Co. is, a, a, I guess, a new entity that, that we're building here in, in Newcastle, Australia. This is really 
based around you know our thoughts on the need to rethink science and how we do it. The Good Science Co is about getting science to the hands of people that that really need it. So rather than just letting the the science sit in academic journals, we we want to do a better job of of translating that evidence to the clinicians or the, the the community at large. But underpinning that is the approach that we take, and we want to make sure that the evidence that we're generating is useful. So it starts with a a good problem, and and we go about answering that that problem or the question in a robust way. And then thirdly, go about disseminating and making the evidence available to the people that really do need it. Because it can take upwards of 10 to 20 years for some of that information to reach people. Exactly. And, and unfortunately, a large proportion of the research that's done that doesn't, doesn't actually get published. Even, even good uh, quality research that have interventions that are beneficial, you're saying? Yes, I mean, it's, a, it's hard to decipher between what types of evidence, what type of evidence is published and, and what isn't. But, but we know that of publicly funded research, I think the figures are, are around that 10 to 15% mark actually gets used in, in practice. And then there's that time lag that you mentioned, the, the 15 to, to 20 year time lag of the evidence that is used in, in practice. And that, that number always was interesting to me. I've always wondered, is that the time it takes for the research to, let's say, land in a curricula at school? Or is that mm-hmm. in continuing education? Or is that, like you mentioned, somewhere in the public health sphere to actually yeah. get to the people who need it? Yeah, e- exactly. I, I think it, it probably includes all of that. We probably need to be cautious about the reality of these, these sorts of stats. There's probably a bit of drama around you know, these 20-year timelines. If we had a close look, I'd, I reckon we'd find things like the, the good research, the, the things that are targeting important issues in the, the conduct of research where there's you know, co-design and collaborative processes with clinicians and health services. I think the uptake of those and the use of, of that evidence would be much higher. And I think that the, probably speaks to the, the principles of the, the good science code. So we're an embedded research group, which means we work within a health service. Yeah. Our research is geared towards answering problems or, or working towards problems for that particular health service rather than us you know, sitting in our office coming up with ideas that we're interested in. We're a technical group rather than a traditional academic group. So if a researcher has information with regard to public health that is supporting the public, how can they disseminate it faster from from your perspective yeah i do i I love that question it's uh don't get me wrong i don't think we've nailed this yet but we're thinking about it all the time and i think that's the that's the the point i'd probably make is that to think about how you disseminate the research and and get it to the public so you know on one hand we've got you know an issue in the the type of research that's done and the, the, the focus of the research i think that needs to we need to tick that box so we need to be answering an important problem but then being creative and, and, and innovative in how we disseminate research to the public or, or to the people that it's geared to, to help. And that can't just be publishing it in an academic journal. And I, you know, the, what you're doing is obviously fantastic in, in, in getting, hopefully getting research and, and evidence and, uh, and ideas from research and evidence to public at large and, and, and clinical groups. I think we need to be much more creative in, in how we do things. And I, I don't know what that is yet, to be honest. Um, one, one strategy that I, that I have undertaken was to employ a communications expert. So there's, a, there's an army of people that, that do a fantastic job in 
in society and in other industry groups around marketing and communications. But for some reason in, in research, we don't utilize those skills very well. So in the Good Science Co, we've got a, a fantastic science communicator and, and marketer who's, who's helping us think of new ways to, to get that information to people better and faster. I would say even in clinical practice, we're not so good at dis- disseminating yeah, right. what we do, how we do it, and who it's for at certain times, yeah. depending. Although it's interesting, now with social media, there are free tools to reach people. Yeah. So it's become a little easier at times, but at the same sure. time, you have the separate problem of more noise. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really nice point, and you know, a good question I think is how do we how do we make ourselves different? Uh, how do we? You know, it, or maybe coming back to a, a, a public health concern is how do we help the public understand what is noise and and what is good quality information? Yeah. That right there is a key question because as as you know so often if you're on social media, it's kind of an echo chamber of you and all your yeah. friends. So exactly, just for you know arguments like someone watches this podcast, loves what Chris has to say about public health and pain. It's getting shared with all of our friends and colleagues. But at the same time, in the other echo chamber, I don't know, there's someone who's promoting the new key supplement to fix pain. Yeah. And if they have, you know, a louder voice than you, so to, so to speak, it can yeah. drown out more effective evidence in, in a lot of yep. in, in certain ways. So, you know, I think as professionals, as, as pain professionals, I include everyone within that, everyone who's a licensed health professional has a see the table with regard to pain. Yeah. But I think as, as physio specifically, it's interesting to watch how we kind of tackle that from a public health perspective. Yeah, and uh, I have some colleagues who are, are really good at infiltrating the, those spaces. And I would have to say that the, the clinical community amongst my colleagues are definitely better than the, the research, my research colleagues. So I think there's a lot for us to learn nonetheless, but, but probably more as a, you know, as a whole to, to learn. Although if I hear what you're saying correctly, it can be quite a long campaign from a researcher to come up with an idea, create the documentation necessary to, to, for the funding, mm-hmm. run the study, whether it's an RCT or another type of yep. study, get the results, publish it. Then after publication, they would have to somehow figure out a venue or an avenue for bringing that to the public, so to speak. So it could be, that sounds like a multi-year process, right? Yeah, it is definitely. And there's a lot to do there. Yeah. I think the issue though is that typically we release the results of that process at the end and that's often publication. And and the results results are not available, for example, to to health services to utilize when we know what the finding is of a study. So I think we, the, we really need to question the purpose of of the work. Is is the purpose to get funding and, and I'm I'm being really critical of of academics here and, and I'm comfortable with that because I'm an academic for the most part. We need to be really careful with subscribing too much with how we're measured. And that's with the, the amount of funding that we have, the number of papers that we publish, and uh, the citations of, of those publications, I guess, by and large. And think more about the purpose of the research that, that we're doing. And the purpose is not to publish research. The purpose is not to get millions of dollars in, in funding. Well, that's helpful to do good research. The purpose is to generate information that's useful for people to use. And if we're creating barriers for that information to be used expediently, then we're not doing a good job as far as I'm concerned. 
and in that in that pipeline or that process that you you talk about, I'm pretty sure there's parts of it that we can tweak to make the process more more expedient. I won't talk about funding because that's a that's a that's probably another hour long conversation. But and and I'm not probably not probably not the right person to talk to about that. But in terms of the process of research, we can you know we can be more flexible with methods. We can be co-designing research trials with health service partners or clinicians. So and co-conducting that research as well. So it's sort of in a consumer engagement space, I, I guess is what I'm saying. But what happens is that that research then becomes part of practice and, and part of the dissemination model is working, co-designing with those important stakeholders. And as soon as the evidence is available, as soon as you know the result, then they're aware of of the result and can implement or, or translate that evidence immediately rather than waiting for it to be published in, the, in an academic journal. And of course, the, the publication process is long and arduous and probably unnecessary. I'm reluctant to go down that path in, in the conversation today, but it, it, it's definitely something that needs to change in my view. Yeah, no, but you, you have two really important points there, I think. And the first thing you mentioned, that partnership with researchers and clinicians, yep. that of course, you know, kind of the more brains in the pot, the better it might be. Definitely. And if the clinicians are involved in it, they may, they may more readily adopt it, which I think mm-hmm. is important. And it's always fascinating to me as, a, as a, primarily a clinician that if there are quote unquote clinical researchers out there doing clinical research, how come it's not hitting the clinic as fast yeah. or as effectively as it should be? Yeah, yeah. Then I don't, then we yeah. should, if it's not clinical research, then we should call it something else, basically. Um, I agree. It's a, it's a really loaded, loaded term, and I'd probably question the, the meaning of, of what, what it's currently doing at the moment. So tell us what you have next on your plate as far as your research goes. There's a lot going on. You know, at the risk of sounding cliched, I've, I've got a number of hats. You know, because I do work in a public health unit, I'm, I'm supporting some COVID-19 research, which is, it's not, you know, vaccine development or anything like that. It, it, it's, you know, we're concerned with how the community responds to, to pandemic. So supporting people in, in self-isolation, for example, understanding what, what requirements people have to, to comply with testing regimes for, for COVID-19, you know, those sorts of things. I, I'm not leading much of that research, but I'm involved probably more from a methodological point of view. Nonetheless, it's been really eye-opening for me to to be involved in that that process and I'm grateful for that opportunity but in terms of my team my direct team we're focusing on continuing to continuing to focus on the the population health aspects of of pain management we've just finished a a healthy lifestyle intervention for low back pain a trial of of a healthy lifestyle intervention sorry it's a multi multi-factorial intervention so our focus is on weight loss smoking cessation alcohol minimization, healthy eating, as well as a you know traditional, maybe I shouldn't say traditional, but pain management education. So some concepts around pain biology and, and that combining the, all those concepts with behavior change strategies. So that's involving dietitians and physiotherapists as well as a health coaching model. We've just finished recruiting for that study and hoping to, uh, so we'll follow up the, the patients for another six months and then uh, hoping to expediently release the results. And it's probably a real testing ground for us as to how we can do that, working with, the, with, with Laura and our communications manager. Otherwise, we're, you know, we're focusing on sleep issues. We're doing some work with children and adolescents to try and understand you know, things like why is pain impacting kids and, and, and what are the, the, 
the pain presentations that lead to more impact than just a, a child kicking their toe or mm-hmm. having a, a sore foot that, that has no impact on, on their life. So we're trying to we're trying to think of pain as a as a consequence right, rather than a, a, a primary health state, I guess. And and certainly the understand the things that, that, that cause pain to be a bigger consequence on someone's life than just a, a sporadic or uh, incidental episode. There, there's some of the things. Um, otherwise, we're, we're diving deep into some, some methodological concepts and, and trying to, to think really hard about the things that we do in research and, and apply that same lens to our research as, as we might to clinical practice. So I think one of the double standards we have in, uh, as academics and researchers is that you know, we, the way we do research is, is actually largely anecdotal and based on our experience. So the way we run an RCT is, or how we recruit patients for an RCT, is based on how we've done it in the past. If we apply that standard to clinical practice, I think we don't apply that standard to, to, to clinical practice. We expect that clinical practice is based on evidence. And, and so we're, we're doing research on research to make sure that that research is of the highest quality standard, but also that it's efficient and we're not wasting taxpayer dollars when we do research by conducting inefficient recruitment strategies or inefficient follow-up. Yeah, those sorts of things. Yeah, the topic of efficiency is one. Efficiencies and how how do we systematize this so we can move things faster yep. is something yeah. that is fascinating to me from a, a public health perspective. And then, of yep. course, as from an individual just delivering care to people. I want to thank Chris for joining us this week on the Healing Pain Podcast. Of course, Chris, everything you talk about, health promotion, exercise, lifestyle, and physical activity are all things that everyone's interested in. How can they learn more about you and follow all the work that you'll be doing in the future? There's a couple of things that you can check out. We have a website, which is helpmyback.com.au. We can give your listeners access to those resources within the website. My university profile is at newcastle.edu.au profile Christopher Williams or something like that. Sorry. You can check out some of the papers there. And yeah, we can forward some of our, our papers to, to you to, to forward to your listeners if you, if you like, Joe. We've just published a systematic review of weight loss interventions for common musculoskeletal problems, which largely includes osteoarthritis and back pain. Mm. Um, yeah, so they might, might find some interest in, in some of our papers. Yep. Anything you send, we will definitely share. We can link to it. And of course, if it's open access, which we always hope that the research is, we can actually yeah. just give it away as a free download. And everyone can check out helpmyback.org.au and check, out Thanks Chris, for and check out Chris's work there. So I'll give you that link one more time. It's helpmyback.org.au. So check that out. Lots of good information there on treating chronic back pain. I want to thank Christopher Williams for being with us this week on the Healing Pain Podcast. Make sure you share this episode with your friends and family and colleagues who are interested in chronic pain as a public health issue. Stay tuned and we'll see you next week on the Healing Pain Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrative pain science institute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.